without further ado, I would like to um, introduce Jeff. Jeff is one of my favorite people. I am such a huge fan. In fact, uh, I have an autographed copy of his book, uh, I, which I treasure. Now, Jeff, okay, fine. You all know that he was a founder of Palm One and of Handspring and of Redwood Neuroscience Institute and of Numenta. But you know what? That's not why I think he's amazing. You know what? Around here, founders are a dime a dozen. But what I think is so amazing about Jeff is that he is a perfect model of someone who follows their passions. He is a passionate neuroscientist, and I have to tell you, so am I. And um, I am thrilled to see how he has taken his fascination with neuroscience and used incredible creativity to start a brand new, very, very exciting company and to write a really defining book about how the human brain works called On Intelligence. So um, I want to tell you, the last time Jeff was here was in October 2002. And it's really funny, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. And the reason is we captured the videos here and we bring those videos back to our lab at STVP and we put them on a, a website called the Educator's Corner. I'm giving a little plug here. And we use the video clips from these lectures in our courses. And it's something I invite all of you to go look at. So if you end up wanting to hear more from Jeff or more from any of other speakers, you can easily go to the Educator's Corner website and learn more. So without further ado, Jeff Hawkins. Wow. Um, well, that's a nice introduction. Thank you. I hope I can live up to it. Um, I thank you uh, for inviting me here, Tina and Josh, and whoever organized this event. I get basis and so on. Uh, as Tina mentioned, I've been here before, and it was about three years ago. And so it's kind of uh, risky coming back because you know, I have two choices. One is, I, of course, I can't remember what I talked about before, although they have it on video. Uh, I could either contradict myself or I could repeat myself. Those are the two options, and neither one's particularly desirable. So um, uh, I'm going to try to do uh, neither. I'm going to try to talk about some, a few new things uh, and hopefully not uh, repeat myself too much. Uh, the other thing I want to say is um, I'm going to talk about my, I'm going to give you some advice. And as people say, you know, advice is worth what you pay for it. Um, and I, I'm not getting paid for anything here. So you can do the math. Perhaps you're paying to be here. I don't know. Uh, but the, the point of this is that uh, what worked for me may not work for you. I'm going to tell you about what's worked in my life and what hasn't worked in my life. And you'll have to extract your own lessons uh, from that as you go forward. OK, so the summary of my talk is basically I'm going to talk a little bit about what entrepreneurism is and isn't. And the basic lesson there is I view it as a tool uh, that should be used sparingly and as a last resort. Uh, it's not a, a job. It's a, it's a tool. The second I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about examples from my life uh, when I decided to use the entrepreneurial tool and times when I decided not to use the entrepreneurial tool. Uh, and so give you some insights into how those decisions were made. Uh, finally, I'm going to talk about lessons I've learned, just to summarize uh, uh, previous points in the talk. Uh, I'm going to do this in this sort of two tracks. I have these, this is what's new from the last time I was here. Uh, I'm going to talk about my sort of industry track and my science track. So as Tina mentioned, I've, been, I've had sort of these two passions in my life. Uh, one is in the mobile computing arena. Um, many years ago, 25 years ago, I decided that, hey, mobile computing is a pretty important thing, and that uh, it was a way of built, if we built small computers that are inexpensive and so on, uh, we can make them accessible to a larger po uh, uh, populace in the world. And that would be a desirable thing to do. Uh, also 25 years ago, right after I got out of school, I fell in love with brains. And uh, since I'll talk about it a little bit, I'll just give you a little preface to it. 
uh, I saw the human brain as a, a, it seemed like one of the greatest scientific uh, mysteries we had that we could solve in our lifetime, that we had a lot of knowledge about the human brain, but we had no theories about how it worked, uh, really no, no good theories, and that this seemed like something we could do, accomplish in my lifetime, and we have a lot of really great benefits. Uh, it would tell us about who we are, it tells us about how, why you have conflict in the world, why we, why we have prejudices, why we make decisions, and uh, ultimately lead to a really uh, amazing technology as we build machines that work on the same principles. So I set that as a goal uh, early in my life to, to work on that problem and try to uh, solve it. So those are the two um, tracks in my life, and I've tried to balance them both throughout my career, which is about 26 years uh, going now. On the, on, the, um, on the computer side, the mobile computing side, I started two companies, Palm Computing and Handspring. Uh, those companies are now combined into one company called Palm One, which I am the CTO of. Uh, on, the, on the science side, I've started two things, two entrepreneurial efforts. One is a nonprofit, the Redwood Neuroscience Institute, which is in Menlo Park. And the other is a recently formed company, Numenta, uh, which is going to uh, promote some of the technologies and, and theories that came out of, uh, out of R&R. So uh, let me now just jump into the first part of my talk, which is what is entrepreneurism and what isn't. You know, I'm always, I always laugh when people come up to me and they say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I, say, well, I feel like, well, you, you know, it's not a, it's not a thing to be. Um, it's, a, it's a transitionary thing. It's like one step from being unemployed. Uh, it's a tool. Uh, it's like being a student. You know, it's good to be a student, but you don't want to be one for your whole life. And by definition, a successful entrepreneur is one who, uh, a person who actually, you design yourself out of that job. It's a temporary thing. If you succeed, you have, a, you have something you've created, whether it's a business or an institute or foundation of some sort. And that, uh, that, it, it, there is no room for an entrepreneur at that point in, in any time. It's a, it's a temporary thing you use to, to start something. Uh, some people say oh, it's great to be a serial entrepreneur, although that sounds to me like you know serial killer or something like that. There's just uh, you know the serial pre prefix um, uh, it doesn't have good connotations. Um, so I, I think you know, the, the lesson here is that the entrepreneurism is something. It's a tool, and it's actually I'm going to argue a tool of last resort. It should be the last thing you do in desperation because you couldn't figure out any other way of accomplishing what you want to accomplish. Um, now, what it's good for is it's good for accomplishing or pro uh, progressing some sort of goal or, or passion. I'm going to argue that everyone uh, should try to find a passion or a goal in their life, as Tina mentioned when she introduced me. Uh, and, and then you pursue that. And when you, when you come across obstacles, and of course the more difficult and challenging the goal you've set for yourself, the more obstacles you'll run across, entrepreneurism is a, a tool that you can use to further your goals. Um, most companies are started with some sort of passion or goal or belief or you know, enthusiasm for something. Uh, the, the companies are formed because, hey, it's a great way to be rich or it's a great way to you know, be independent, generally are not as successful as the ones where people started because they believed in something. They wanted to do something important. It could be something really important like, you know, you know cure the injustices in the world or solve some disease, or it could be something small. Uh, like uh, we're just, we want to make the internet faster, or we want to, perhaps they want to democratize software, or something like that. There's usually some passion, and you need that because all business has obstacles, and they, all business is hard at times, often most of the time, and you need to have that passion to carry you through. And so, if you look at uh, really successful companies and founders, of them, they'll typically tell you that they really believed in what they were doing, and they thought it was a, a good thing to do. So those things go hand in hand. Now, let me, um, let me give you some examples uh, of this entrepreneurism process uh, I've used, when I've used it, and when I didn't use it. I was just talking to Tom Byers a few minutes ago, so he'll, he'll relate to this. I'm going to start off with a, 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 an episode of my past when I decided not to take the entrepreneurial route. Um, uh, this was back in 1987, I guess it was. 
Uh, I was at that time, a, uh, I, I left industry and was a full-time graduate student at UC Berkeley in biophysics. I won't go into all that story there, but I was uh, out of industry at that time. And I'd fallen in love with the idea of building a, uh, a mobile computing product that was shaped like a tablet. You know, it had a, a flat uh, screen, there's no keyboard, you had a stylus, and you'd be able to interface with it and so on. Uh, and I had several options in front of me to produce this uh, product. I really, this I felt was a good way of starting into this mobile computing arena. Um, start with sort of this handheld device that people could, could use while walking around and so on. And I had a couple options to me. One was to go back to my old employer. Previously going to Berkeley, I was employed by Grid Systems. And they were interested in having me come back as an, as an employee and I could build, I could take a team and build this product there. Uh, this was desirable in some ways because it was fairly, I, I knew them, there was a, a group of people there who knew me. Uh, the, the product I wanted to build was first targeted towards vertical markets, that is enterprise sales, and that's what they did, so that was a lot of good things. There wasn't a lot of financial upside in this uh, because I was an established company and I was coming back in sort of as an employee. Uh, another option I had was to join a startup company that had just been formed. This startup company was called Go Corporation. And um, it was, uh, some people are laughing here because some people know this story, but there's this whole sordid history of pen computing and stylus computing and PDAs and so on. But Go was one of, it was a really exciting startup company. Uh, they had great venture, back, uh, venture backers. They had a great uh, stellar team. Um, Bill Campbell, who spoke here earlier in the series, he was involved with Go. And, um, uh, and so was Tom Byers, who, uh, a, um, company, uh, a side company called uh, Slate. Uh, anyway, I, was a, I wasn't going to be a founder of that company, but I could join. I think I was going to be like the sixth employee or something like that. And I had an offer to join them. And they were building a very similar product. They were building an operating system and a tablet computer with a stylus interface. And that, from a purely sort of financial return point of view, looked much more promising than, um, than going back to, uh, to Grid. Uh, however, uh, I felt that I'd be more successful at Grid in following my, my goal. And one of the reasons was is because um, Go is trying to build a consumer product and trying to replace Microsoft and build us a whole new sort of genre. I thought that was too ambitious at that time. I felt at that time the best you could do was go into enterprise products. These things are going to be fairly expensive and fairly narrow in their, in their reach. And it was sort of a choice between, I think I'll be more successful in building the product going the grid route and perhaps more financially successful going the go route. And I chose to go the grid route. I chose not to sort of do the entrepreneurial thing, even, uh, even joining an existing startup. And uh, it was probably a good idea that I did that. Uh, eventually, Grid built a reasonably successful business on the grid pad. Um, it, was, uh, it led to a lot of uh, a career advancement for me. And for whatever reason, eventually, Go did go out of business and, and struggled for many years. Then the next time, here's the time I actually decided to use the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial process. I was now at Grid. It's five years later. And uh, we're doing the grid pad thing. And I decide I want to do a consumer product. I want to do a little thing that's under $500 that people would you know, be, be bought in consumer channels as opposed to the enterprise channels. And I felt at, uh, at Grid, I couldn't do this at Grid because this was a consumer product and Grid was an enterprise sales company, an enterprise computing company. Making matters a little bit more complicated, Grid at this time was owned by Tandy Corporation. Tandy, it, Tandy owns uh, Radio Shack and they own Computer City and Incredible Universe and they were the third largest PC manufacturer at that time. And so they were very excited me about building this consumer product at Tandy. And they were putting a lot of pressure on me and making it hard for me to do something else. But I said to myself, look, a consumer product at an enterprise software company, Grid, didn't make sense. And although Tandy was a large PC manufacturer, they really were a retailer. 
And a retailer shouldn't be building the products that, that go into their channel, especially if you're trying to build a broad product. So I tried to convince them that the best thing for me to do was start a new company to do this, Palm. And they didn't like this. I'll tell you a story. I went to, uh, I went to Fort Worth to visit John Roach, who was the CEO of Tandy. And he's a nice guy. Um, and Tandy, they own these two big towers, downtown Fort Worth, Texas. They dominate the skyline, these 20-story towers. And John's office is the top floor of one of these towers. And, you go, and it's very intimidating. You know, you go there, there's a little waiting room on the fourth floor. Everyone sits around shaking all day long. And then when John says, you can come visit me now, you get off the elevator at the 19th floor, and there's a receptionist, and there's this huge panel of glass. And then you get on this one-way escalator. It says, you step on the bottom, it takes you up. If you step on the top, it takes you down, you know? And then you go past another reception, and another reception, and then there's this long hallway. It's just like going to visit the Wizard of Oz. You know, at this point, you're going, you know, you want to turn around. Not me, but this is, you know, I, I had a little bit, you know, cocky attitude back then. Anyway, I go down and visit John, and he's, he's in his office down there, and he's got this beautiful view, and he has this Texas drawl, you know. And he goes, you know, you don't want to start a company. You know, he's, you know, those venture capitalists, they're going to squash you like a net. And he puts his thumb on the table and he goes, like this, you know. And, uh, but I said, John, I, said, I just don't think it's going to work here. I really, you know, I'd love to stay here. It's easier for me, but I don't think it's going to work because I don't have the right business mix. I needed, I need, I can't be a, an enterprise computer company and I can't be captive to a retailer. Um, if I, if I could have done it, I would have. So that's the time I started Palm. And um, Palm was actually was very helpful because I had several venture capitalists who were trying to convince me. So I was playing them off each other, saying, I don't want to start a company. This is a lot of work. You know? And I said, John, I don't really want to do this here. And, um, and I meant both of those, actually. I wasn't being facetious or, or disingenuous. But in the end, I decided the best thing to do was to start Palm. And, uh, and I said, I would only do it if I have really great support. And my VCs had to really chip in and, and help me out quite a bit, which worked out pretty well. Another time I, uh, we did the entrepreneurial process was when I formed Handspring. And this was, we are now at Palm, and Palm was owned by 3Com at this time. And so uh, 3Com is a networking company, and 3Com's business wasn't doing very well. It was like, you know, it was really tanking. But Palm is this little uh, uh, wholly owned subsidiary or division of 3Com was doing really, really well. We were growing very rapidly. And um, we were sort of shoring up the financials of 3Com. And they didn't disclose, they didn't break out our business. Uh, uh, and we felt that this was not a good situation. Uh, there were several conflicts. One conflict was basically we want to invest in Palm in the growth of this new business. And they wanted to siphon off profits uh, into other parts of 3Com. And then there were some legal issues, like we were suing Microsoft and we won, but then they wanted to back away from it because Microsoft got pissed at 3Com and so on. We said, look, Palm has to be independent. We went to the CEO of 3Com and said, sometime, now or in the future, we don't care, let's figure out a way of making it independent because it really doesn't belong here. And uh, we went through a six to nine month process where we brought in investment bankers, we met with the board, we did this whole analysis. In the end, it came down to the CEO's decision. And the CEO said, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I'm, never gonna, I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it in the future. Uh, and uh, you know, it just belongs here. We felt that if Palm stayed part of 3Com, it would die and that we were, it wasn't worth sticking around watching it die. So we said, okay, we're going to have to leave then, and we'll have to start another company, which ultimately would compete with Palm. Um, and people said to me, oh, congratulations, this is wonderful. I said, are you kidding? This is, a, this is a terrible situation. We were totally bummed out. This was a huge setback for us. We did not want to start a new company. Financially, financially, it looked like it would be a good idea because we'd end up with a lot of equity in the new firm. But from our mission of building mobile computing and promoting and, and, and progressing the, the, you know, the, the, the mobile computing world, this was a huge setback. And we were not happy about it. I was bummed out for weeks. 
So we decided to do it, but it wasn't like, yippee, we're off to starting the company. It was like, oh, damn, and we're starting over again. Because it's a lot of work, and it sets you back, and it takes time to start businesses. If you don't have to, why bother? Uh, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a slow process. Finally, um, I'll give you one more example uh, in, the, in the handheld computing world. Uh, Handspring, um, we started Handspring. It was now an independent company. Guess what? 3Com decided a year later that they had to spin out Palm anyway. So now Palm is separate and, 3Com, and Handspring are separate companies. And we, uh, we were about to introduce the first, tri the Trio 600, the product that looks like this guy. At, at, we were at Handspring. And uh, this turned out, the, the Trio 600 turned out to be a very successful product, but it was going to be very expensive to bring it to market. And at that time, Handspring didn't really have the cash to do it. We didn't have enough money to bring a very complex product like this to market. So we had two options. Always have two options. Never make a decision with one option. Uh, always have two options. So we had two options. One, we had arranged independent financing for about $40 million. Now, we were a public traded company at this time. So this was a pipes financing, which is a private investment in public equity or something like that. Um, and, but it was $40 million. And for that, we'd be giving up some portion of the company. The terms weren't great, but they were OK. The other option that was on the table for us was to merge with our old company, Palm. Right? The one we had left, so Palm Enhancement could come together. Now, they had been proposing this for years, and we kept turning them down. I said, I don't want to do that. I, at that time, Palm, I, Palm had, a, had all kinds of problems, and the management team was messed up. We said, we don't want to get involved with that. But um, they had cleaned up a lot of the financial issues, and they had a better management team at this time. But I was still against it. And I'm going to tell you that we were in a board meeting now at Handspring. And in our, on our board was uh, a bunch of venture capitalists, including John Doerr. And John Doerr, he, he really said something very insightful. He said, he said, look, um, let's stop thinking about our options as between a financing option and a merger. He says, think about the merger just as a financing option. Uh, I said, how is that, John? He goes, look, in both cases, you're giving up some part of the company and you're getting some assets in return. That's what happens when you, when you sell equity in your company. And that's what's going to happen if we do the merger. Uh, it turns out that Palm had a lot of cash, but they didn't have a lot of good products. Uh, we had an up-and-coming product, but we didn't have a lot of cash. And if, as long as we got representation on the board and as long as we had good representation on the management team, think about it as a financing option. So now I could compare these two very simply together and say which was the better financing option and which would be most likely to lead to the success of the product in the, in the product mission, which was the TRIO 600. And uh, we decided that merging with Palm was the right choice at that time. Uh, so that was a sort of you know, not staying independent becoming part of the old entity, sort of not, being, not following your entrepreneurial instincts, but saying, what's the best thing for the product? So those are my examples of a, two times I did it, two times I didn't do it uh, on the computing side. Now let's talk about science. OK. Uh, throughout this whole time, I'm always working part time. Most people don't realize this, but I, could, I worked anywhere from one, two, to three days a week on my, my neuroscience interest uh, throughout all these years. Um, and uh, I had gotten to know quite a few neuroscientists. And sometime around the beginning of the uh, 2001 or something like this, I was talking to some neuroscientists about how can we make a change in, in neuroscience? How can we get more people working on the big questions of neurosciences? How does the brain work from a theory? You think a lot of people would be working on this. It's not true. There's very few people who work on the big theory of brain function. They all work on little pieces. And we'll tell you why in a second. Um, but how do you do that? One thing I could do is I could start a foundation and fund things. That would be pretty easy to do, but it wasn't going to be very effective. Because a foundation, you can give money to people and they'll say, oh yes, we'll, you know, we're happy to get your money and we'll do whatever you think, and then they do whatever they want anyway. Um, this is a well-known secret in, in uh, academia. You know, take their money, give them a name over the door, and then, uh, then do what you're going to do anyway. Um, it wasn't going to make a difference. And so some of my neuroscience friends said to me, you know what, the only way you're going to make a difference is to form an institute that's focused on this particular problem. 
And I said, that's stupid. I mean, that's crazy. First of all, it's a lot of work. It's like starting a business. And I said, who's going to be the first scientist to come to this institute? You know, you put a shingle on the door, you wanted, you know, brain scientists. And, <laughs> and it's, it's another problem, too, because in science, in academia, you're going to get, your whole career is basically, you know, trying to get on a tenure track. And if you get off that tenure track, you're hosed. So going to work at some little, you know, crazy new startup uh, uh, institute is a very, very risky thing to do. So I said to my friends, I said, look, I'll do this if, um, if, um, if you tell me, you know, uh, if you are going to help me do this. Uh, and so uh, that's what we did. Uh, we basically, I said, okay, we'll start an institute. And, and by the way, starting a scientific institute is exactly like starting a company. You have legal issues, you've got IP issues, you've got rent, you've got employee issues, HR problems. Um, all the same stuff, you've got, you got a board, board meetings and financials, you know, everything's got to be done just like a business. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of issues associated. So I didn't want to tread down that path very, uh, lightly. Okay, um, so let me tell you a story. Um, uh, let me just tell you a story about, about uh, this, if you will. Oh, I'll, no, I'll come back to this later. I'll come back to this later. Come back. Okay, my next story is why did I start Numenta, which is this new business we just started a month ago. Uh, so let me tell you a bit about R&I. R&I uh, is about 10 scientists, uh, some PIs, those are like senior scientists and postdocs and, and, and student. And um, we're all sort of working on the same problem. We're all trying to work on the, the theory of neocortex, how the neocortex works in the brain. And everyone signed up, to, and some of the scientists I see are in the room here today. Um, and, uh, and everyone that we're sort of working on the same problem. And to some extent, R&I was very, very successful, in my mind. It was extremely successful by focusing on a particular problem, by bringing outside speakers in who, who we would pick. We'd say, we want to learn more about this or about this. We'd bring in, we'd do intensive stuff. Um, we really made a lot of progress. And, uh, and, and the, the theory that's outlined in my book really came out of the sort of interactions that came out at R&I. So from this point of view, it was very, very successful. And R&I has a reasonably good reputation now in the neuroscientific community. I knew that when people started telling me, gee, when am I going to be invited to come to R&I? How come I haven't been invited yet? So-and-so has been invited. And, and so it really, it's turned out to be, it's three years old, and it's turned out to be pr uh, pretty well. However, I'm now at this, uh, I'm now stuck. I have a theory about neocortex. I'm pretty certain it's right. Um, and how it works and how we think. And I want to progress to the next, stop, the next step. And, then, and I'm kind of stuck at R&I now because I've got a bunch of independent scientists. And although we've got this theory, they're still independent. And they do their own thing. And they're not all working on the same thing. Uh, and I really want to progress the theory that I've come up with and, and make it go forward. So I've decided that the best way of doing this is actually to start a business. And we sat around and talked about this because, again, starting a business is a big commitment and time and money and effort and lots of problems. Um, but I decided it was the best way to promote the science because I want to bring a, a commercial or financial um, incentive to people to work on it with me. And uh, so that's what we did. And, and Numenta is building tools to take this theory and build intelligent machines or these memory systems. If you want to learn a little bit more about it, you can go uh, read the book or you can look at numenta.com. Uh, so that was, uh, that was, you know, I was at every, every point along the way in the neuroscience world, you know, you know, what's the right process, what's the next step? And at one point in time I said, I'm going to do a nonprofit. the next time I'm doing a profit, but all sort of furthering the goal. Okay, let me just give you some thoughts about the difference between entrepreneurism in science and entrepreneurism in industry. And I found this interesting, so maybe you'll find it interesting too. In, in industry, entrepreneurism is a fairly well understood thing now. You know, if you went back, um, you know, 30 years ago or something, uh, it wasn't. But today you have these entrepreneurial forums, they have entrepreneurial classes, um, and so on. So if you wanted to start a business uh, using the entrepreneurial process, there's a lot of help. Um, you can find funding. There's VCs who are just designed for funding startups. There's lawyers who are experienced in this. There are employees who've been through the process and know what to expect. 
No one says, what the hell is this about? They say, okay, I know what this is about. In science, it's not like that at all. If you want to do something that hasn't been done before, there's like no help. There's no funding. There's no, you know, people don't know what they're doing. They're like, what? What is this about? You know, and, and trying to solve the brain, basically, is really was viewed as very radical and crazy and risky. Uh, I'll tell you a story here. Um, most of the neuroscience funding these days comes from the National Institute of Health, NIH. And through a board member, I got a, a very high level introduction to NIH. And I went out to Washington and I gave a talk to pretty much all the program managers who fund neuroscience or theoretical neuroscience in, um, in, a, in, a, in the federal government. And this is where the vast majority of the money comes from. And I made it very clear that I was there not to, to ask for money. I said, look, aren't I, I'm funding R&I myself. Uh, but I, I was there because I wanted to learn about how they fund and what, what, how I can help them and so on. So I get all these program managers in the room. I tell them about what I want to do. I said, we want to you know, come up with a theory of neocortex. And they all go, that's fantastic. That's the most important thing. We really, really need that. That's really great. You're going to do this. I say, well, well how, how do you guys do this? Did you fund research like this? Oh, no, we don't fund anything like that. I go, well, why not? Oh, we can't. And, I, and this is their words. I'm not making this up. And, and I said, I said, well, why not if you think it's so important? He says, well, let me tell you how we fund things around here. Uh, first of all, it's all done by committee and consensus. So we bring in like 40 scientists from the outside. We bring them together. They serve on these committees. And they review the grants that come in for, for doing things. And we all have to agree. Everyone has to agree. It's consensus. Um, so if there's anything kind of radical in there or anything that hasn't been done before, someone's going to veto it. Uh, and and also, these people all know that their, their grants are going to be reviewed in the same process, and the people that they're sitting next to are going to be critiquing them in the future. So this is their words. Basically, what happens is it's very, very difficult, nearly impossible to fund something that hasn't already been done. Um, <laughs> and this is, what, this is what goes on. And I'm saying, oh, boy, this is hard. Um, you know, so so there, is no, there is no equivalent to the venture capital community. You know, it'd be like going to bankers and saying, I'm starting a brand new business, and would you give me a loan? They'll say, no. Right? But you go to a venture capitalist, and they figured out how to structure this to make it work. There is no equivalent in science. Uh, no one can do that. There's nobody to help you set this up. There's no models for this, and so on. It's very, very different. Um, I'll tell you another a little analogy I made here. Uh, in, in business, let's say you start a company, and you're, you're working on some new thing. You typically have just a few competitors. In any business, you really just have a few competitors. So you might just have, let's say, five competitors in whatever you're doing. And if you're a bunch of startup companies or small companies, maybe you all have 100 employees or several hundred employees. But you, you're surrounded by you know, hundreds of people working on the same thing. You're on the same team. You come together every morning. You diss the competition. You convince yourself you're going to be successful, rah, rah, rah. And you've got a few, you know, five competitors you can diss and say, oh, those guys, we're going to kill, kill them, whatever. Um, in science, it's just the opposite. The teams are very small. In science, there's typically five people to a team or to a company. It's a, it's a, uh, a principal investigator or scientist, a couple of postdocs, and a couple of students. So you have these very small teams, and there's hundreds of them. And they're all doing the same thing. So you've got hundreds of competitors with five people each. I, I find it very depressing. Um, you know, you want to surround yourself with people who at least can think the same way and telling you, oh, yeah, we're going to do it right, you know, pat you on the back and so on. But in science, there's these little teams, and there's hundreds of them, and they're all out competing with each other. And um, it's really kind of, it's just a very different dynamic. Um, and uh, it's, it's very hard to break through that. Uh, and, and I've been trying to do that for several years now. Okay, let me, um, those are some of my, my contrasts between science and industry here. Let me, uh, let me end up with my lessons here, the, the walkaway points. Um, first of all, uh, I think everyone should try to find something they're passionate about in their life. 
Uh, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be like solve world hunger. It's okay if you want to do that. That's pretty good. Um, but you ought to find something. You know, you pick it. It could be um, a business thing. You know, we want to build a better chip. We want to make the internet faster. We want to do this. We want to do that. Uh, it could be a science thing. It could be a, um, a public interest thing. I don't care. Find a passion. Uh, you don't have to be, you don't have to get it right away. You can be patient about it. You can, can develop later in your life. But be on the lookout for it. Because that's what makes, I think, what makes an interesting life. Is you find something you're passionate about and you say, okay, I'm going to work on that. And I'm going to work on it for a while. And, you know, and it gives you some reason to go through all the crap that happens in life. Especially, um, you know, if you pick a challenging thing, there'll be a lot, of, a lot of bad things happen. The harder the challenge, the more difficulties you encounter. But pick a passion and then follow it as long as you can. Along the way, lesson number two, use the fastest and surest ways to promote or, or get to your goal. Um, this is backing back to entrepreneurism. You know, at any point in time, say, what is the surest method of progressing my goal? Not someone that's going to make me the most money or the most fame, whatever. I believe that rewards come from following your passion and having success at that. And, you, and all the other stuff you care about in life will take care of itself if you are true to your, your beliefs and you've picked a good goal to go after. And so sometimes you take a step forward, sometimes you take a step backwards. But if you continue following it, um, you want to you always look for what is the surest way to get there. And that's how sometimes you say, you know, it's not the entrepreneurial process. I should develop this product here at the company I'm at already because it'll be quicker or more sure to get done on time and so on. Um, remember, third rule, entrepreneurism, use that as a last resort. It is not the first tool, it's the last tool. It's when you're up against the wall and there's nothing else you can do and you say, well, it's the only thing I can do now is just throw it all away and start over. Um, then do it. If you try to do it at other times, you'll, you'll, you'll have problems. If you only use it as a last resort, then it's usually a successful tool. And as I said, the more ambitious the goals you have, uh, the more likely you'll have to use the entrepreneurism process, and in some cases, maybe multiple times, as in my case. And then finally, um, uh, work smartly. Uh, this is just a catch-all for a bunch of little things I want to put in uh, here and together. One is, I don't believe you have to work really hard, uh, like long hours, to do a lot of significant things in your life. Um, it doesn't require that. It requires uh, making the right decisions at the right time, the critical decisions along the way. Should I do this, go this route or this way? Should I raise money or sell the company? And so on. And you make those decisions over and over again. Those are the critical junctures. And if you make those critical decisions right, then pretty much everything else flows along. If you're finding yourself having to work 20 hours a day, then you've got something wrong going on. Uh, for most of the time, my kids were young. Uh, I had this rule that I always have breakfast and dinner with them. Uh, I still have that rule, except they're not there now. But, um, <laughs> because you know, they're teenagers, and they're, they're off doing their things all the time. Um, but that was a rule I had, and I found you could, you know, unless you're traveling, and I try not to travel that much, you can actually do that, and you'd be amazed that life continues if you don't at the office every day. Keep your eye on the goal. Don't let it uh, get away from you. Don't, don't forget why you started this thing or what you're trying to accomplish, because everyone wants you to forget it all the time. There are all these contingencies that come along and are always forcing you to do this and forcing you to do that. Just, you know, what am I trying to accomplish here? What is the ultimate goal? And it sounds, it sounds easy, but it's actually pretty hard um, to do that. But if you really do that, it'll work. And then fun, finally, uh, try to have fun. Uh, I say try because it's really not possible to have fun all the time. Uh, you know, business, when you do anything challenging, it's always full of, it's day-to-day -day crisis. That's what business is, it's crisis a day. And, um, and only at the end of the day, you actually get back and look at it and say, hey, well, that, you know, that was pretty good. So just, you've got to try to have fun as you go through these crises moment to moment. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. There was a book written about Palm called Piloting Palm. It was written by one of our early employees. Um, and it, was, it covers about a 10-year period, and, 
And it's actually quite good. Um, it's very accurate, and it's fairly entertaining to read. Uh, and, and I can't remember things too well. And so uh, this woman, Andrea Butcher, she wrote this book. And she, when it was done, I got a copy of it. And of course, she interviewed me for it, but she interviewed a lot of people for it. And so it covers this formation of the palm computing and all the things we went through. And I read this book, and it was like really exciting for me. It was like I couldn't remember any of this stuff, so it was like new to me, you know? And I'm like, I'm going, oh, well, what's going to happen here and what's going to happen here? And it sounded really, it sounded pretty, ex it was pretty exciting for me, actually. Oh, you know, wow, you know, look at it. And it really struck me because when you're going through it, it doesn't seem that way. When you're going through it, it's just, you know, oh, problem after problem after problem, we have to solve this stuff. But you look back at the end of the day, and you say, hey, this seems like pretty cool, you know? Um, <clears throat> it, it, all the problems are documented, but they just didn't seem so annoying in the book. Um, so, so uh, anyway, the point is that, you know, you, you just got to have faith that uh, in the end of the day, it's all going to turn out well. And therefore, don't sweat it too much. And every day when there's a new crisis, try to remind yourself saying, hey, you know what? We'll get through this. Just follow the goal, follow the mission, and, and you'll get there. Um, okay, so I, that is the end of my prepared comments. And I'm, I'm told I, we're going to take Q&A here for a while. Is that okay? Did I take enough time? Okay, so we'll ask any questions. Anyone, don't be bashful. You're bashful. You can applaud if you want. That'd be all right. No, go ahead. Oh, we have to. Oh, we have little microphones. Like you're in a squad car or something, you know. Yeah. I'm interested in um, hardware and design outsourcing that you decided to employ um, in different stages. So, how did you come to that decision to design in-house or to outsource? And again, um, giving your product away to offshore, like electronics, to produce. Yeah. Um, so you all heard the question, I assume. So I don't have to repeat it in this in this venue. Um, I find it pretty interesting, this whole outsourcing thing, because there's a big brouhaha about it right now. But this started a long time ago. Uh, in the early 80s, uh, all companies had their own manufacturing for computers. Uh, Grid had its own manufacturing plant uh, right here in Mountain View, then in Fremont. Uh, and now no one would do that. And so the, uh, but back then, that was the way we did it. And then some way, one day, the VP of manufacturing came in and said, you know what, I think we can do this cheaper and better and higher quality if we have someone else manufacturing who's really good at this stuff and we're not very good at it. Um, and, that, and so that's what we did. And so we, you know, outsourcing and manufacturing started happening in the early 80s. And now, of course, people are, uh, we're talking about outsourcing of uh, support centers and software engineering and so on. Uh, I'm a pretty, uh, I guess I'm, a, I'm a pretty much of a globalist. I, I can't see the difference between outsourcing jobs to Georgia and outsourcing jobs to India. Uh, it, it basically, you have to have a fairly uh, non-world view to see that one is better than the other. And if people in India need the jobs and they're poor, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't have it. Um, and uh, maybe that sounds unpatriotic or, or something like that, but I kind of look at the world globally and I say, gee, those people need this work and so do these people, but who, you know, who am I to decide uh, who in the world should, should get a job and shouldn't get a job? So that's an overall ar ar overarching ph um, philosophy on my part. Um, now, uh, you know, the decision of whether you outsource, we don't sit around and go, should we outsource or not? No, it doesn't work like that. You say, hey, at this point in time, what's the best thing I can do? What's going to progress my goal the best? Where am I going to get the support? We sometimes bring things in, and sometimes we push things out. Um, we've, we've gone both ways. Uh, we went, um, we, we now we outsource some of our design, but we've brought some of it back in. Some of the hardware engineering is out, some of it's back in. At any point in time, a great example, if a product is a fairly easy product to design, like you've done a bunch of them already, so we're doing a new PDA, it's fairly straightforward we'll probably find a better solution uh, someplace else in the world uh, that has a pool of engineers that are really good at this. 
If we're doing something that's really unique and hasn't been done before, it's probably better to have it closer to home in our own labs because we're going to be sitting there you know, minute to minute figuring out what we got wrong and trying to experiment and so on. So you know, as a general rule, we tend to bring, have inside or closer to home the things that are, that are most challenging and interesting. Uh, not interesting, but challenging, uh, new. And as, and as it becomes more of a commodity, then you can find more people and more places to do it, and you can reduce your cost and so on. Uh, so that's the general philosophy, and I don't think it's going necessarily always going one way or the other way. Uh, I think the world is becoming global, and, and there are people really smart and really motivated all around the world, not just you know North America, not just Japan, not just wherever your favorite country is, Finland. Um, and, and so, you know, look, let's just, you know, don't fight that thing, just go with it. It's not like some evil plan to, to you know, deprive people of someplace of something. It's just, you know, it's just what it is. It's a globalized world, and, and there's very little you can do about it. And I think it's a good thing, actually. I don't, I don't, I'm not embarrassed by it at all. This gentleman back here. Uh, I've never met somebody that seems to know something about how the brain works. He claims that you've got some great theories. You've got a whole research Uh, so I'm not sure I understand the question there. Um, uh, it starts with it starts with skepticism about I know something how the brain works, but then I'm not sure if you were asking how I influence how the crossover between my two jobs is or something like that. Well, the first part is just how does the brain work? Uh, oh well, that's <laughs> that's a that is a, an hour talk at a minimum, and uh, but I'll give you a flavor. First of all, it's not just the brain; it's the neocortex and the thalamus. So we're interested in very specific parts of the brain. Um, and neocortex is the big sheet on top, and that is where all high-level thought occurs. That's where language and visual perception and somatosensory touch and mathematics and language and planning and so on, art, everything you know, anything you can tell me comes out of your neocortex. There's a lot of other parts of the brain that I'm not studying. Second thing, the neocortex, just to give you a sense, even though it does all these different things, uh, it actually works on a single principle. This is not something I made up. This is a well-known fact. Uh, some people have refused to believe it because it seems hard to believe. But believe it or not, the way you see, it's the same mechanism as the way you hear and the way you touch and the way you move and the way you think about mathematics. It's all the same mechanism. And, uh, and you can, once, you, once you've accepted this and then, you, then you, you follow this idea, you understand what you understand what that mechanism is, you can understand why it does different things and how it does different things. So it's not like solving you know, lots of different problems. It's solving one big problem. And it turns out the neocortex is so flexible um, that it actually it turns out to be simpler than you think it might be. It's, it's not designed specifically to do language, or specifically to do mathematics, or specifically to speak English, or design computers, or anything else. It's very, very generic, and, it can, and a human being from birth can learn a tremendous amount of different beliefs about the world, and can do a lot of different things. So it's not as hard a problem as you might think it is. It is counterintuitive uh, how it works. And just in the five-second or ten-second definition of this, it is a, it is a, it is the cortex is a memory system. It's hierarchical. The, the, the regions are, of the cortex are connected in a hierarchy. And, and this hierarchical memory system builds a model of the world. And then through that model, it makes predictions about the future. If you really want to, you know, if, if you want to get a rest, read the book, get it from the library. You can buy it back there. I'm not here to sell books. They wanted to sell a book. So, but I'll, I'll sign books after the talk if anyone wants to get it. But, uh, you know, and I, I understand your skepticism. So be skeptical. Um, you know, that's what, you know, being entrepreneurism is all about. It's, you know, people don't believe you're going to do something, and then you go do it. Uh, so from where I'm sitting, at this part of the stage, from what I've been through, I'm pretty confident about what this is. From your position, you can be very skeptical, and I understand that. And to go on, then, 
How to affect what I've done? What do you mean? Uh, how does it affect it? Well, my brain is me, right? Your brain is you. So my brain's starting a new company. I'll <laughs> put it this way. It, it, it tells you, it gives you a lot of insight. It, it's a psychological phenomenon. You can explain how we learn, why we make mistakes, why we're prejudiced, huh? uh, and so on. It, it, it really explains an awful lot. Um, and, but I'm just going to leave it at that, and I'll answer other questions from other people. This gentleman right here. What about the singularity? What's your opinion about it? What, what the singularity? Maybe I don't know the, the singularity. Explain the singularity. Oh, the future doesn't need us. I know that one. Um, is that something about the singularity? Oh, I think I read about the singularity thing. Uh, I probably forgot about it or dismissed it. Um, <laughs> the future doesn't need this. This was by Bill Joy. It was in Wired Magazine, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. Uh, and so Bill Joy wrote about, I think, three things. Something about, like, you know, intelligent machines and reproducing machines and something else. I can't remember. And basically he says, you know, we're going to destroy the world uh, because we're going to build these... Uh, this is roughly paraphrased, so excuse Bill Joy if you ever listen to this. Um, roughly paraphrased that, hey, you know, we're going to build these little machines that are going to take over the world because they're going to replicate and, uh, and they'll be smarter than us and we'll be destroyed because we'll be, um, um, you know... Nothing. <laughs> and um, did I get that right, right, basically? Close enough. He's nodding. Okay. Uh, so I don't believe any of this is going to happen. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I do think it would be dangerous to create things that reproduce. Okay? If you create little life forms that reproduce, that could be pretty dangerous. Those are like viruses and bugs and bacteria. That's pretty dangerous stuff. Um, but building brains and understanding how the brain works and building smart machines has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with actually building human-like things. It's building the neocortex, not a human. We're not building things that replicate or feel bad about you know, being wrapped in a, in a little black box on a rack someplace. Um, <laughs> it's basically saying understanding uh, how the brain works, taking that knowledge, what can I do with it? And I write about this a lot in the book, about what these things will be like. And it's not threatening at all. When they invented the steam engine, people thought this was miraculous. He was a machine that had the power of animation the power of animus, which up to that point was a complete mystery. You know, there was living things and there's dead things. You know, or living things and rocks, pretty much, you know. And, um, and the living things were magical. They had, you know, a lawn vital in them. And all of a sudden, here's a machine that moves. And this is like, people said, this is the end of life because we've just created living things. Didn't turn out that way, did it? You know, no one sits there and look at their vacuum cleaner and say, oh my God, it's got a motor in it. You know? <laughs> And the same thing happened with computers. You know, when computers first came along, people said, whoa, thinking machines, you know, and they're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, the internet or whatever is going to, like, you know, enslave us and so on. It didn't turn out that way. The same thing's going to happen here. It's a technology. I happen to believe this technology, which I call hierarchical temporal memories, is a really, really significant technology. I think it's going to be one of the most important technologies in the next 50 years. Um, and, uh, and yet, I don't think any threat to it. I, you know, certainly someone could do something bad with it, I suppose, but there's no like, threat to humanity. Uh, so when I read Bill Joyce's uh, piece, I only knew for real for certain one of his components when he was talking about brains, and I said he didn't understand it properly. He didn't understand what was going to happen. He was reacting the same way those people reacted to the steam engine uh, many years ago. And I, I thought a lot about this. I cannot see the threat from building intelligent machines. Again, they're not going to be like you. We're not building you know, Stepford Wives or R2-D2 or something like that, you know, it's, or 3CPO. Three, three um, it's not like that, not Androids.
This in the back there. I missed part of the question. You have five engineers on your team. This is the science team? Or any part of it. Any team. You've got a bunch of people on your team. And how do you differentiate them? So you have a bunch of candidates. Oh, you have a bunch of candidates. I mean, how do you hire someone? Pretty much. <laughs> well, I, should be, I think you should go to the, you know, what's the, there must be a class for that here someplace. Um, well, there's, there's no magic to that. Um, like in Numenta, all right, we're starting out in Numenta. And we, we put together a hiring plan. By the way, process is very, very important in starting any new business, uh, even at the beginning. I mean, you think it's the last thing you need to do, but you really need an employee manual. You need to think about your compensation structure. You need to think about everything. You need to plan things out. Um, so very early on in a company, before you really hire anybody of significance, you need to put, a get, put together a financial plan and a hiring plan, which is part of the financial plan. And you think through all these issues, and then you stick with it. And it's, it's really, just today, we were talking about, uh, this morning, we are talking about a potential candidate who might be great. But we didn't really have that position right now. It was going to be later in the year. And so we decided, look, even that person may be great, don't go hire them just because they're there. Um, hire them when you need them. And so you know, we stick to a plan. And then you just standard interviewing process. You, know, you, you scour the world for the best people you can, try to convince them this is the best opportunity. And uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know, when you, if you're doing something exciting, you get a lot of people interested. So it's not too hard to get a pool of people. Um, but, but then you really have to hire to the plan. That's the best I can do. And you want, you want a mix of people. You want some junior people who are going to, you know, who haven't been, their brains haven't been destroyed yet by other people's thinking. And then you want some senior people who've been through the process before, so know how to build companies. I'll give you one more little lesson about companies, right? The best entrepreneurs, in my opinion, have, have both positive experience and negative experience. You want them to have lived through a positive time, growth time at a company, because then they know what growth is like and how to manage growth and how to, how to grow and what kind of problems you have with growth. You also want them to have worked, lived through bad times, companies that were suffering or, or failing. And because you want them to realize that it's usually not a walk in the park. I remember there's a lot of people who came out of early Apple after Apple had gone for many years of really great growth, and they'd never worked anywhere else. So they thought all business is easy. You know, well, you, know, you just do, have fun, you know, you know, make some t-shirts and it's going to be great. And then, <laughs> and then they find out that that's not really what it's like. And most businesses, every business hits the wall sometime. And, and you really, you better be observant to how, um, how that comes from. So when I look for people, it's really great to have experience on both sides on the senior people. The junior people, you just start them out and say, you train them as you go. Um, I, I, this, this gentleman right here. Yeah. 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 So there's two parts to this question. How long is this going to take? And the other one is, um, uh, it's sort of like, how do you know when it's ready? Oh, when you back off. Um, so my, my business partner, Donna Dubinsky, always says, you know, you can, you can, uh, you can present the, the, you know, the, the, the financial plan, you can present the time frame, but just don't ask for them at the same time. Right? <laughs> you pick one or other. I can tell you how big it's going to be, or I can tell you how long it's going to take, but, but don't ask for the same thing at once. Um, and there's some truth to that. Look, I, you know, I didn't come here to pitch Numenta. 
In fact, I would I wouldn't be here for that at all. I, I, it's, we're sort of in our quiet period in some sense. Uh, and why, why you know? But Dina asked that I could mention it and should mention it, and, and there was some news about it recently. So uh, I'm not here pitching anything. In fact, you know, we, we probably won't really come uh, completely open with what we're doing in probably the spring of next year. Um, so how long will it take? Uh, it's very difficult to tell. Uh, I'm an optimist. You have to be uh, in these situations. I certainly wouldn't have started Numenta if I didn't feel that I knew exactly how to get to a success from where I was. Prior to that, I did it as a nonprofit. I did it as an experiment in the laboratory, you know, science. But I pulled the trigger in Numenta only when I said, you know what, we've proved this works. We've built it. I'm positive I can make this work, at least as positive I'll ever be. And now's the time to go forward. How long it will take is very difficult to know. Uh, we're going to create a set of tools that uh, allow people to, to apply this technology to a lot of different problems. We'll apply it to a few, but mostly we're trying to build a set of tools. We're going to try to build a set of community of people to work on it. So when we come out with this stuff sometime next year, it'll be partly like, here's how it works, and here's something we've done with it. But it'll also be like, here's how you can take it and modify it and make it better and work on it. And I think it's a, it's a long endeavor. I view it as sort of like the beginning of the uh, computing era. The computing era began, let's say, in the 1940s and 1950s. Back in then, the people who built the first computers were pretty excited about it. Uh, but they hadn't invented the disk drive and the operating system and the compilers and all the stuff that we, and chips that we take for granted today. It was decades of evolution. We're at that point now in this new technology. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot faster because we're starting at a, a more advanced technological base, but it's going to, um, it's going to take a while. Um, but, you know, I would say if, uh, if we haven't done something really significant in five years, I'd be very disappointed. It could be as fast as 18 months. Uh, the second question about... Um, uh, uh, when do you know when to back off? Uh, just don't go, you know, most companies go out of business, all companies go out of business because they run out of money, right? That's pretty much bottom line. Uh, and why, they, you know, and I very, very few companies didn't succeed because they went too slowly. The vast majority of companies didn't succeed because they went too fast. Um, you know, there's occasional situations where like you have a small market window and you have to hit it and if you don't hit it, someone else beats you to it. But especially when you're doing something new and really interesting, almost, you know, it's the people who, who last, you know, Palm Computing made the Palm Pilot. We succeeded because we didn't go out of business. Everyone else went out of business because they went too fast. We conserved our cash and we were able to survive to the next round uh, to do the Palm Pilot. Uh, if we'd spent our money a little bit faster, we would have never done that product. We would have been out of business. So most companies fail on the, oh my God, we have to go full speed ahead, you know, grow, grow, grow. And by the way, the venture capitalists want you to do that to a large extent. It's in their best interest managing a portfolio. It's not necessarily in your best interest managing a business. So um, that's a subtle point, but I can get back to it if you want. Um, so, you know, I, what we're doing at Numenta, for example, we're just going to go really slow. We are, uh, we're going to go slow. We're going to basically say, okay, we're going to have 12 or 13 employees in our first year. We're not going to grow beyond that until we're absolutely certain that we, uh, we know exactly what we're going to do with them and we're really clear that there's going to be an opportunity. And uh, at that rate, we can go indefinitely. Uh, we can self-fund it indefinitely. Not that we want to do that. Uh, but the trick is just pace yourself. Very few companies go out of business because they're too slow. They almost all go out of business because they grow too fast. And then once you make commitment and you hire these people, you just can't, you can't take it back. Okay, question all the way in the back, that gentleman. They didn't work. They didn't work. Yeah. Yes. Uh, 
Well, remember, back in the days of early AI, I mean, I started, my career started in 1979. So I lived through a lot of that, right? And in fact, you know, my first, inter my first disappointment in the brain world was when I applied to MIT's AI lab. And they basically uh, turned down my application because they said, we're not interested in studying brains. And I said, we, I said, we all want to we build machines. I want to study brains first and then build machines. They said, oh, we don't need to do that stuff. Um, you know, if I put a broad brush on AI and neural networks, and it's not really fair to do that because they're very complicated subjects. If I put a broad brush on it, you would say, I felt, I felt back then that they would both fail. Uh, AI was going to fail because they felt the brain was a computer. And I said, brain's not a computer. It's obviously not a computer. It works on completely different principles. I didn't know what they were at the time, but it would say, oh, it's not a computer. So programming it to, to do it is just not going to work in my mind. And they just ignored biology completely. Neural networks start out by saying, okay, maybe it's not a computer. Let's figure how neurons work together. Good idea. Um, but then they, they went to very simple neural network models. They didn't look at the large-scale structure of the brain. They said, how do, what happens when I hook up 50 neurons together in this way? And it's totally unbiological. A real brain has large-scale structure. It's got different, these columns and different cells and these, and these hierarchical arrangement. And then none of these models took advantage of that. So they started down the right path, saying, hey, maybe it's, it's something different than a computer. Let's understand neurons. But in the end, as far as I'm concerned, they almost all, and there's a few exceptions, almost all of them basically just ignored biology in the end. And so I was pretty critical of those. And if you read my book, I was pretty critical of them in the book, too. Um, uh, basically, said, this is not the approach that's going to work. And the only thing approach that's going to work is we have to first understand how a brain works. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there. I'll take one more question. Uh, and I think this gentleman right behind the camera, I've seen his hand a few times, I think. Yeah, yeah. So the, this is a good topic to end on. Um, so uh, first of all, we're not building brains, okay? We're building neocortexes. <laughs> um, it's something that works the way. So yes, it's absolutely possible to understand how, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's possible to understand how any physical system works. We, we just, you know, our ignorance is our ignorance. But in the end, uh, we haven't seen anything we can't understand ultimately. Um, and in terms of the brain itself, it's a very complex organ of many different parts. The neocortex and the thalamus are the parts I'm most interested in, and I'm absolutely certain you can understand that. You can build machines that work on the same principles. They are not going to look like brains. They're not going to look like babies. You know, you're not going to go to 7-Eleven and buy a little baby and say, you know, here's my mechanical baby, you know. Um, this is just an algorithm, and you can be implemented in software. That's what we're doing today. We actually have this working, so I'm telling you that you know, it's solving problems today. We're doing visual, uh, visual um, uh, perception. And, um, and you can build machines that work that way. They may not look at all like a human, right? It might be just a car that understands traffic and how to drive and knows what, you know, when, you know, how cars move and it models its world of traffic. Uh, it could be a system, uh, as I wrote about in my book, about like weather. It just looks at weather uh, stations and it models weather like you and I model visual scenes. It, it takes a while to explain all this. It can be done in a book, but not in a lecture like this. Um, and uh, so these things, uh, and some of them will be trainable, some of them weren't. You know, some of them will be like, hey, maybe I want my car not to learn. I want my car to be just the way Toyota built it or GM built it. I don't want it to change. I don't want it to start thinking on its own. Um, but maybe there are other systems we clearly want them to learn from experience. And uh, would you, you wouldn't go to 7-Eleven to buy a brain. It's just like a technology. Like, you don't go to 7-Eleven to buy a microprocessor. 
Um, it doesn't, on its own doesn't do much, but you can embed it in other products and do interesting things with it. And that's what this is. It's just a technology, and it'll be embedded in other products that give these products the ability to model a world and know how the world works, their world. It may not be the same as our world. Um, model their world and make predictions about their world and interact with that. Uh, and so it, I don't think there's anything unethical about it. Uh, it's, it's not, you, it's just as I said with the steam engine and the computer, it wasn't unethical to build those things. At least I argue it's not. And I don't think it'll be unethical to build these brains. It is not the same as building people or humans or cloning humans or anything like that. They look pretty boring. They're just little computers running on a desk someplace uh, doing something. All right, that's my full allotment of time. I'm going to stick around, but I'm gonna, if anyone's interested, I'll sign books afterwards, but I'll also be glad to talk for a little while. Thank you very much. So, on behalf of Basis and SVP, I'd like to thank Jeff for speaking. Oh, thank you very much. What, what do I got here? Little trophy. Little trophy. All right. And then uh, we'll have the book signing.